Blog Talk Radio.
hopefully that put everybody in the mood for today's show. I know that was a little long, but you know what? It was really a very, very cool song, and that was requested by my guest today, William R. Forrest Chin, and um, he is the New York Times bestselling author of One Second After, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Pillar to the Sky. This is Holly Stuffy. Welcome to Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio. And um, that song is really special to him. We talked a little for a few moments before the show started, and that song is referenced in the book many, many, many times. And um, we were going to talk a little bit more about that, but... I will tell you that after reading the book and reading and reading William's bio, um, it's just amazing what he has done. So let me bring him on real quick, and we're going to be talking today. William, how did you like that? That was cool, huh? I'm very mellow at the moment. <laughs> I know. Thank you. you know, that, 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 was, that was, you know, I, I normally like to let all my guests pick what they would like to open the show with. Well, when I heard this piece of music, I was like, oh, no, I can't just play part of it. I have to play it. And I know there's a part one and part two, but I I played the part one where you can hear what you assume to be spaceships and 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 things that are going on maybe in um, space out there. So um, welcome to the show, by the way. And uh, the chat room is open. And if anyone would like to call in, the number is 347-677-1036. And I want to welcome you so much to the show and your amazing book, Pillar to the Sky. Great follow-up to One Second After. And uh, your background is pretty pretty intense. <laughs> I was um, I was reading it, and, and then I was just like, you um, have a Ph.D. in history um, from Purdue University, and you specialize in military history and the history of technology, which is kind of cool. For 30 years in the field of education, that's that's fantastic. You've applied that for 30 years. How do you find time to write as many books as you have because you have over 40-some written books? Um <laughs> Did you do that with teaching and um, doing everything else that you've been doing? Well, writing's always been my form of relaxation and entertainment as well. And mm-hmm. I teach because I love being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And then writing becomes a way of unwinding, but also just spinning out stories. And the, the history behind Pillar to the Sky is I, I was approached a couple of years ago by my publisher in cooperation mm-hmm. with NASA to write about humanity's return to space. Mm-hmm. I'm a kid. I'm a kid of the Apollo age. I grew right. up with the, with the great dream of Apollo unfolding in front of my young eyes, and it inspired a whole generation of us. Mm-hmm. And Across the last 20 to 30 years, almost all our literature about the future is dystopic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even my last book, uh, One Second After, is a very dark story. So when I was given a chance to cheer on NASA, to cheer on our space program, and say, guys, there's still an incredible future ahead of us, I went for it. Now, thank you for playing my favorite composer. Her name is Constance Demby. Uh, mm-hmm. She was part of the whole, what became known as New Age music back in the 80s. 
and she combines very spiritual music with what you could call space-oriented music. Mm-hmm. So as I wrote the novel, that played over and over and over. My daughter knew when I was working, so gosh, he has Constance Demby on again. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it, it's been a thrill projecting. The idea is the way to return to space is not as we've been doing it with chemical rockets, and, which has been the way we've been doing it for the last 50 years, but it's to actually string a wire from geosynchronous mm-hmm. orbit 23,000 miles up, anchor it at the equator, and then the centrifugal force of the Earth's rotation will keep that wire rigid. Mm-hmm. Once you have that in place, you can hook an elevator to it, essentially, uh, and you're on your way to the stars. Right now, it costs about $25,000 a pound to put an object up in space. A wow, space elevator. I didn't know that. That's yeah, interesting. So I was just talking to a high school group last week, and I said, okay, guys, you're up there in orbit. You get an urge for a Big Mac. You call down and say, I want a number one, you know, super size. And that would be six bucks plus a $25,000 delivery charge. We are at the bottom of a gravity well here on Earth. How do we get mm-hmm. out of it? And the way out is to run this cable system, which I know sounds sci-fi, but in fact is hardcore real technology. It can oh, be I can see it's real. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And then the cost uh, drops to dollars per pound. Yep. That That's just amazing that you did this. And, I mean, you're not new to... This is the first book also I was reading that is part of the NASA collection that you're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And for um, anyone that doesn't know who NASA is, um, that's who does the spaceships and all the really cool stuff that we're getting and um, information about Mars and the moon and stuff like that. So. Uh, I implore everyone to go to the NASA site. I actually have the NASA app downloaded on my phone. I am a diehard NASA fan, just so you know, and that's why I wanted to do this interview with you. When I was younger, just like you, I wanted to be, I wanted to work as an, I wanted to be an astronomer, actually. I didn't want to go into ski, had wanted to do, um, and do other things. I wanted to work as an astronomer, and I really sucked at math so i could do it it was something that didn't didn't work for me but you know um i had it, it's such a privilege to be able to meet you and with everything you've done i mean you were you were really young when you first wrote your very first article um for space for boys life in 1984 and then um You've written other things before that, before that, and I know that you've written some of the New York Times best-selling Civil War novels, and um, one about Pearl Harbor, which you co-authored with a former Speaker of the House, Newt Greenwich. So, Newt, Newt Greenwich, excuse me. Just Newt. <laughs> there, see, Everybody knows who he is. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, you are just um, this is this is just really really cool. So how did this? How did you decide that you were going to do a series of NASA-inspired fiction um, based on concepts that you feel are in reality a real a real deal? Um, how did that come about? That was one of those like unbelievable phone calls where mm-hmm. 
my publisher, uh, Tor Forge Books, is headed mm-hmm. off by this incredible character. His name is Tom Doherty. He's just one of the best publishers in the business. Mm-hmm. And Tom made me an offer, as they say in the movie, I, he gave me an offer I couldn't refuse, which was mm-hmm. we, Tom's vision was this. Back in the golden age of the 50s and the 60s, both of science fiction and of the beginnings of our space program, NASA had a whole squad of cheerleaders out there, guys like Asimov, Robert Heinlein, mm-hmm. Arthur C. Clarke, who were writing the stories that were coming true within a matter of a couple of years. And Tom's vision was, let's get a new generation of cheerleaders out there that can point to a positive future and say, you know, America's greatest days are still ahead. We have really fallen into a malaise in these recent years, regardless of our political view. Whether we're progressive or conservative, we all have this gut feeling that's kind of scary that where's America going? There was a time when we believed America was going into the new frontier of space. Now, Mm -hmm. I know some people are listening and they're going, so what? Been there, done that. Well, let me present for your consideration, great line from the old Rod Serling's uh, Twilight Zone, (laughs) what greatest driving economic force of need in the world today? That is energy. Mm -hmm. It is what Mm -hmm. triggers wars. It is what is polluting the planet. Well, suppose I could offer the vision of limitless energy, clean, Mm -hmm. green, limitless energy. It's out there. It's called sunlight. Mm-hmm. and it's streaming past this planet, and all we need to do is rig some space elevators, as they're called, or pillar to the sky, hook solar panels to them out in space, and increases the capability of solar panels by magnitudes, and we can be piping down limitless energy, and you will see the shutting down of every coal-fired, oil-fired, and fission-powered plant within 20 the 30 years after we start producing energy this way. This will be the energy of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And we'll, you know, I was a scoffer regarding global warming until NASA invited me up to the Goddard Space Flight Center where I talked with their people for several days. And when I started seeing their projection models for CO2 and sulfur dioxide emissions 30 years from now, that was like an oh-my-God moment. Yeah, I bet. Therefore, I bet. Yeah. And NASA has the answer on how to solve it, and that is let's start harvesting sunlight in space and piping mm-hmm. it back to Earth. So well. I have to write the book. I want my mm-hmm. daughter to have a positive future. I have to write the book. So that's how I got into it. And, you know, I tell people, it's like you're a kid and you get a phone call and the guy says, hey, you want a lifetime pass to Disney World? <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's how I felt. <laughs> That is that's so cool, and I know your daughter plays a very integral part in your life. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because um, I was reading a little bit about her surgery and stuff, and how that inspired you. Uh, Megan, uh, Megan is a pre-med major at Chapel Hill. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been a single dad for ten years now, raising her on my own. And besides being my daughter, she's my inspiration and buddy and everything else. And 
when people ask, oh gosh, why are we spending money out there? They have this image of a ship goes up and they dump a bucket of money out. Every mm-hmm. dime is spent here. But one example of what NASA does for us, two years ago, I had that terrifying moment of a doctor coming out of an exam room and saying, are you Megan's father? We have to talk. Oh, wow. Three, three hours later, she was in emergency surgery. They had discovered she had a rare birth defect with a vein folded over, and she had clots all the way up from her leg up to by her heart. Oh, my 30, gosh. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. they would have had to split her open from her sternum just about down to her knee to clean it out. Mm-hmm. NASA technologies, NASA technology made the difference. A one-inch incision down in her calf, three surgeries across three days, grow cameras, micro-wires, micro-injections that they could work up through her veins, insert stents, and when it was all done, that wonderful doctor, who, by the way, is a character in the book now, I put his name at, Dr. Mm-hmm, Bach, mm-hmm. could sit there and smile and say to my daughter and me, Megan, You're this, here. Is the healthiest day, <laughs> this is the healthiest day of your life right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. That technology. Well, well, think about how you and I are talking at this moment. Uh-huh. Think about driving home without GPS now. Think about our entertainment, our medical, so many aspects of our life are influenced by the research that NASA and space technology. I believe that. I see that pretty much every day with a lot of things. Yep. I'm a true uh, believer of that. A a favorite example of, okay, let's say some folks are listening right now and they're going, gosh, you know, still sounds kind of far-fetched. Here's my favorite example. 1962, 1961, Jack Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of the decade. Why? Mm-hmm. Because we're Americans. We did it in eight years and three months. Now, mm-hmm. early in, when they first started figuring out, okay, we're going to have what's called a LAM, a lunar module that's going to detach from the orbiting ship around the moon and go down and land on the moon's surface, as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did, and astronauts <laughs> up to Apollo 17. Uh-huh. Somebody quickly pointed out, you know, great idea, but the computer on board the landing module will be bigger than the entire landing module. So what did NASA and its research people do and a team up at MIT? The order went out. You're going to have to shrink a computer the size of a room to something the size of a suitcase and weighs less than 50 pounds. Technology that looked impossible in 1961, and they were flying them in 1968. Now, that computer that put the team on the moon was 40K. Not megs, not gigs. Uh, I think you have something like the cell phone that your average kid in school is carrying now, iPhone. Mm -hmm. That's something like 100,000 times more computer. No, I think it's 400,000 times more computing power than the one that put us on the moon. Where did that phone come from? Space research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, i got to get off my pulpit here because you, you start me talking about space, I get all wired up. You have to have me mellow. No, by listen, listening to I want to hear about space because, honestly, <laughs> honestly, these 
this book is really intriguing, and I and I really and, and the book is available, by the way, on pretty much every network where you can buy a book, and you can also go to the website. I posted that in the chat room, and I have to tell you that these, this book and also your other book, um, One Second After, you're saying that it was a little dark. It was a little dark, but it was also very a very good story. Um, you kind of tell these stories and paint pictures for people that, really great because they can actually really imagine it and like you said building an elevator to the sky it's feasible i mean i could actually see that happening who knows if they're really doing it maybe they're really doing it somewhere where we really don't know because um just coming from background of being around a lot of people that are involved in the the industry of the government with with space and and uh, the Air Force and different people. I've heard so many stories about many different things that we just haven't been told. And, like, um, I have somebody that I know that's a very famous colonel in the Air Force. And he was a fighter pilot. And he also was uh, a colonel and um, very well respected and told me, Many, many times I would go over and I would sit and he would tell me, he would tell me the stories, kind of like what you're telling me a little bit about, every, not stories, in reality, it's all real stuff. He would tell me things that were happening and he, and I said, he said, you know, you want to know, you want to know about UFOs? And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, they're up there, that's all I can tell you, because we basically used to play cat and mouse in the sky. They used to come down, I chase them, they chase me. He says, they was fun. He says, trust me, they're there. And so that was my first indication that I knew that there was a lot more going on other than being told. Um, it's great to go to be able to go to NASA and see the eclipses and know about the solar flares and, and the different things that are happening. But what about the real stuff that's happening, like what you're talking about, that we don't hear about on an everyday basis? Um, well, NASA actually got some seed money about 15 years ago uh-huh. to do feasibility studies on a space elevator. But unfortunately, and I don't want to get into politics and such, but unfortunately, current administration, but even the previous administration, just mm-hmm. have slashed them to the bone. They have, I, yeah. yeah. I was a guest lecturer at Langley uh, Research Center in Virginia Mm-hmm. the day after the current administration killed the Constellation and Aries projects, which was returned to the moon by 2020. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, I remember that. I yep. I, I saw people break down in tears, people who I had bet. dedicated 10, 15, 20 years of their life dreaming this. Mm-hmm. And I was at Goddard Space Flight Center two weeks ago to do a guest talk there and meet. And I'll tell you, that was scary because – book had just come out, and I was going to Goddard, and people at Goddard had given me advice. I didn't know if they were going to say, hey, Bill, nice novel, but you're crazy. <laughs> these, these are the ultra-tech heads. I mean, the people uh-huh. whose brains, I think, are twice as big as the rest of us, and you can see the veins uh-huh. pulsing on their heads. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And they were all, every single one was, Bill, it's feasible, we can do it. 
All we're lacking is the money and the will. I actually believe private venture is going to be the one that might very well trigger this, and that was part of the plot of the novel. Mm-hmm. Some dot-com billionaire. And by the way, if there's a dot-com billionaire listening to this show right now, mm-hmm. I'll send you a free copy of the book and think about it, okay? <laughs> yeah, and oh, wait, that's, that's what I want to ask you. Let yeah. everyone know how they can get in touch with you, and let's give out your website again real quick. Okay, best, there's two best ways to touch in with me to find out about the book. Just simply go to uh, look up TOR, T-O-R, and then forward slash FORGE. Just Google that, and you'll go to their website where they got info. Um, my website for this book, my student assistant, went on her vacation before she finished the website. So right now the best way to reach me is simply put a B in front of my last name, B. Forston, at Montreat, and that's M-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot E-D-U. That's the college I teach at up here in the mountains of North Carolina. Very cool. I, I you know, um, I was very blown away at you've, how many books you have actually written and published, and the fact that you've written so many books that were on history, war history. What got you interested um, in in um, history as far as, you know, war and um, the different the different things that were going on and all the all the different aspects of how we how we were taking on the civil war and the history of technology. Um, I grew up just outside of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, where I grew up was all part of the urban sprawl, but a major battle of the revolution had been fought right across where the row home I grew up in, you know, was built 20 years after the battle. And my mom for a special treat would walk with me down to a church that existed during the battle, the battle of Springfield. Mm-hmm. And we'd, we'd go through the cemetery and my mother was a wonderful storyteller and she would paint, verbal pictures that in my young mind would come alive. Mm-hmm. And I had hundreds of toy soldiers at home that I would set up as dioramas for the battles. Oh, and I became wow. fascinated with it. And I had mm-hmm. beautiful, wonderful parents who encouraged my imagination. My father was a scientist. He was a chemist. Was my he? Mom, That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, your background yeah. on your family. Wow. My mom... In a different generation, my mom would have become a poet, a writer, a teacher, a storyteller. Mm-hmm. She was the classic 50s, you know, stay-at-home mom raising three kids. Mm-hmm. But, oh, did she inspire my imagination and storytelling. And, uh, well, this is going out over the Internet and airwaves, so mom and dad, I thank you every day. I was blessed with really great parents. Oh, that's fantastic. Are they still with us? No. No. They're in the next place. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah, definitely we wanna we wanna say that. Also, hey, I wanted to say real quick also, not to change anything, but International Women's Day. I wanna wish every woman in the world um a happy International Women's Day. It kicks off today, it's actually tomorrow. And uh don't forget to set your clocks ahead an hour Saturday Sunday, right? Sunday? Yeah, Sunday. Yeah, well let me throw a picture here. Uh, young women listening to this program. Yeah. The sciences 
math and the sciences, they're begging for you to turn your brain power onto that. I have this passion for encouraging young women to pursue the hard sciences. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's a prejudice against that even now, which is really kind of hard to believe in this year of 2014. Uh, I guess you picked up in reading the novel that the young female character, uh, Victoria, mm-hmm. who I will confess there's a touch of my daughter in her, yep. uh, becomes a main driving force in the story. Mm-hmm. So uh, on International Women's Day, I'm shouting, ladies, the sciences await you because yeah. there's fantastic careers waiting for you there. There really are. And... Um you know, I was going to ask you. Uh, I can. I'm. I'm going to guess here that your mother and your father were both your mentors growing up. Um, you didn't really have one mentor. Both of them really, really cheered you on with your beliefs. Correct? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember. Well, thirty second quick story of a defining moment in my life when I was about eighth grade. You know when you're going into that awkward changing stage and some friends came over and I had a diorama set up of a Civil War battle and they made Mm -hmm. fun of it. You know, you're still playing with toy soldiers and such. My father overheard it. And later that evening, my father sat down with me and he's like, son, what battle is this? And Well, gee, who commanded over here? And then he just started talking to me. He said, son, I am proud of you. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of your imagination. Don't let other kids bully you out of your imagination. Be proud that you're different and you think differently. And 30 years of teaching, that's what I'm always trying to tell my kids. Take pride in being different. You don't have to be like everybody else. Use your imagination. It's the greatest gift God gives us. Our ability to think and imagine and create. You know... That's really great that your father did that for you because I can't tell you how many children are bullied and teased. And um, I always say to everyone that is co-creating and creating and and also doing the great work that you're doing. Um, It's amazing stuff to have because it's like um, uh, people will reference back to this a lot is one of my favorite lines in a Rolling Stones song with Ruby Tuesday was, lose your dream and you will lose your mind. So yes. it's kind of like, you know, it's like if you're not true to yourself and you're doing everything for everyone else, then you're not really being what you can be to your full potential. And I can see where you're empowering yourself. And also, you've empowered your daughter. Your daughter obviously is very in tune with what you're doing. You obviously have a very close relationship with her. Um, I could only imagine what it would be like as a parent to go through um, a life-challenging experience. I've gone through one not as, as intense as that, but one close to something like that where, you know, with my own daughter. So... I can only I, I I understand, and also being a single parent, you have a lot of time on your hands, and you have time with your child and bonding. Um, what was that like growing up with her, growing up with you, and you being so much into this? I bet you had so many great things to share with her. I want to hear that. Gosh, that's been great. Uh, I would have loved I, to have been your kid growing up. That would have been fun. Oh well, well, there's a downside. I, I, I try to put it in every acknowledgement when I when I thank uh-huh. my daughter 
because I'm a writer as well. And so I'm, I'm in the zone. And it kills me when I see these. Maybe people have seen this ad recently where it's a, it's a writer's club, a reader's club, and then suddenly the author is there reading something or other. And his hair is neat, and he's all properly in it. And all the women are going, oh, he's a writer. No. Usually we don't smell too good at times, and we've been sitting up to 2 in the morning, and there's a oh, yeah. pizza box on the floor. Yeah, and yeah. When my daughter hears Constance Demby playing in the background, she knows I'm writing. So if something comes up and she taps on the door and peeks in, my standard line to her is, Megan, either the house is on fire or the Pope is at the front door. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Do you dinner a lot together and talk about what you're doing, your projects and stuff, do you guys do you guys discuss things over meals or just sitting around and just talking? Oh, I'm I'm a classic bachelor father. I mean, it's like, well, let's call so and so and order number seven from takeout. <laughs> okay, I am a Friday night pizza night for me. Okay, yes. that used to be what yeah. it was for my daughter and I too. Every Friday was pizza night, so we knew we could sit around and talk about everything. That's yes. that's fantastic. She must have. And and how old is she now? Uh, she's twenty and a half. She's a junior oh. at Chapel Hill. Wow. So, you um, are probably very inter- you play a very big part in her life. What does she think about your new book, Pillars of the Sky? Um, has she voiced her opinion to you on that? Oh yeah. There, there, there's a funny story about that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned my previous work. Uh, one second after. Yeah. Which, ironically, is selling as briskly again as um, Pillar, and I which I joke, it's it's helping put my daughter through med school. But um, one second after is a tough book at points. It, it's it's a very dark moments about a potential military threat that could devastate this country. Mm-hmm. So I would I would do interviews like you and I are doing now. I'll tell you as I'm leaving the interview with you tonight, I'm going to be happy because, you know, we had a fun, mm-hmm. but there'd be times it would really get to me. And Megan oh, would I sit there. Overwhelming? Megan, Is that the word? Oh, yeah, it gets overwhelming <laughs> at times. And so the, the joke was, she said, Daddy, next book, why don't you make the title Happy Bunny Goes to Town? Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, great kid's book. Great kid's book about uh, a happy bunny. And I was like, sweetheart, you're right. I should. I'm gonna. And so I got a chance to do it. I got to write. She's too book. cute. She's too That's cute. That's positive. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 What is she Needless majoring say, in? If I if I want to ask, I, I want to ask what she's majoring in in school. Oh, she's uh, pre med. She's biology pre med. Wow. And, so she's um, staying in that science field too. And I she's, bet she's amazed at what was able to be happen with her with her surgery. I bet she's she's a living. She's a living uh, a blessing, and to be honest with you, that's a very she is. that's a pretty scary thing what you went through. And I can only imagine being a single parent and being a science fiction writer and also writing real things. It's how would you classify yourself? You're not really just a science fiction writer. You also write about history. I mean, you've written so many books that are in our schools. You've written more than you've, you're an author of more than 40 books along with works in the realm of history and fiction and technic tech, technological 
can't talk today. <laughs> I cannot talk today. And um, the Civil War novels, and uh, you co-authored the book on Pearl Harbor. Why Pearl Harbor? What was that to you? What What made you decide to do that? Um, Newt and I uh, met, oh gosh, back in 93. And mm-hmm. we just hit it off. He's, he's a fellow historian. Mm-hmm. And we wound up doing nine books together about history. And um, we were, so many people, when they think about Pearl Harbor, it's just almost like, well, yep, Japanese bombed us on December 7th, 1941. And we wanted to really go backwards and look at the origins of it all, going back mm-hmm. into the early 30s, as to how the communication broke down. Not many people know this. We and the Japanese were allied together in World War One. They were on the same side. Mm-hmm. So what was this disintegration and rivalry that finally led to the horrifying deaths of well over a million people? Over 200,000 Americans lost their lives in the lives of the Pacific. Japanese, maybe as close as a million. Mm-hmm. How, how in hell did that happen? If you study history, there's that old line about not repeating it, but maybe by trying to understand better how mistakes were made, we can prevent it from happening in the future. For example, I'm, I'm watching this current situation in Crimea, and I'm just like, this is getting scary. There's breaking down of communication here, and that can spin out of control. So oh, yeah, that's no, something totally. that I focused on a lot of... Uh, and we wrote three, I felt very, I wouldn't say enjoyable, but very serious books about the American Revolution to convey just how hard the struggle was and how, the, how much sacrifice was made to give us our freedom. I agree with you. And a lot of people don't realize that there has been so much that we as Americans and as scientists and and the the list is endless, have, have actually sacrificed and yes. um, given and made choices. Um, I know for myself even, um, when I do things, I give so much of myself into certain situations that I know are going to be monumental and are really important because they take more, they're more important, I think, than some of my own stuff. I want to ask you what you felt like when um, Fukushima happened because that was a real big, a big uh, awakening for me. That that was yeah. That was that was pretty scary because I'm in California and they basically put Geiger counters all up and down the coast of California and Oregon. But oh no, the radiation's not coming this way. Well, I don't know if anyone remembers it rained that weekend. And I put, I, I'm a true scientist at heart, besides just being really creative. I put water, a bottle out and got rainwater and measured it, and there was so much plutonium in the water, it was ridiculous. Um, so, you're, 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 hitting a, uh, you're hitting a core, one of the core reasons why I wrote Pillar to the Sky. Yeah. And yet again, I, I, I'll link in. What, how will going into space solve things mm-hmm. like Fukushima? How do we make energy now? It's all, you, people should realize, it's all about boiling water into steam. Mm-hmm. We use nuclear reactors to superheat water, to superheat steam, to turn turbines to generate electricity. 
We burn coal to superheat mm-hmm. water to turn turbines. Now, how else can we get energy safely? One is by hydro, but that's only a small percentage. Solar. Now, right up here in the mountains of North Carolina, there was a proposal to put solar panels in. Who shouted the loudest against it was the environmental groups. It was mm-hmm. going to deforest 220 acres. And how many hours a day is a solar panel really effective? Mm-hmm. Very few. But if you put the solar panel 500 miles above the earth and you have it hardwired, you're not beaming the energy down, which would disrupt the atmosphere. You're actually running the superconductivity cable down. You got all the energy you need boiling water using plutonium. You stop boiling water using coal. You stop boiling water using oil. Mm-hmm. That changes yep. the entire economic paradigm of the 21st century. And a lot of times people don't want to do it because they don't want <clears throat> they don't want anybody to know that there could have been an avoidance of what really happened. And a lot of times people don't want to admit to their faults either, which is kind of common nature for people. But honestly, this stuff is still going on because I have friends over there that are letting me know the backwash of all this has been pretty major. Um I was that in they Russia. don't talk about. <laughs> they just was, don't talk about, Bill, at all. They just don't do it. They won't. I was in Russia when Chernobyl blew. Mm-hmm. I was there working with a group. We were in an information vacuum until we got off the plane in Helsinki. And as we're going through checking through security, there's somebody there with a Geiger counter. And it's like, what the heck wow. is this? And for the first mm-hmm. time, now, we were in Moscow when it blew, but we were told we picked up a, a light dose, the equivalent of a couple of dental x-rays. But still, it was unnerving. I have Ukrainian friends who were evacuated. Um, mm-hmm. there's, a whole, there's a whole dead zone there. In fact, there's yeah, a documentary. I know about that. You can find it on YouTube. It's just mm-hmm. it's a dead zone of a couple hundred square miles. It'll be a thousand years before anybody can go back there. So, same thing with Fukushima, Remont Island. We have to find safe alternatives for energy. Mm-hmm. There, there's no other way around. We have to find a safe alternative. And I, my particular thing now is I believe we will find it in space. Oh, yeah. Yep. Do you think that they're going to make it just for um, people that have money? Are they going to try to capitalize on that, you think? or? Oh, Tom Doherty had the perfect answer for that. He said, you want to know how to get uh, 50 congressmen to support uh, building a space filler? Because I, I, I turned my first draft of the novel in. That's my, my publisher. I said, what? Mm-hmm. He said, okay, the story is set on a, uh, it's a real place in the Pacific called Kiribati. used to be known as the Gilbert Islands. They're right mm-hmm. on the equator. Mm-hmm. And Tom sat down and then across to California. And the state of California can tax the energy as it comes in. you got 50 congressmen behind you instantly. And we were laughing about it, but it's true. If we have limitless energy coming from space and it can be wired into the United States grid, they throw a little tax on it. That will make them all happy, and we can even balance the budget while we're at it. Mm-hmm. So we had to get that political will behind this stuff. And... 
that's why I think private venture is, is going to be the path. Uh, guys like Rutan, uh, Branson, Merck, and others mm-hmm. who were also kids of the Apollo age and were inspired by that and want to see it go. It definitely. By the way, one, one thing I love to throw out uh, when I mm-hmm. talk with students is sports in space. I would, I, I can envision in the year 2050 there will be an Olympics in space because it's an exercise I love giving the kids. Think up a sport. Think up a game that you could play in low gravity or zero gravity environments. How's it going to change music? And Constance Demby, I believe in her mind, actually does travel in space with the things she writes. How's it going to change music, art, dance, ballet, sports? It's all the cultural changes that going into space can give us. It's more than just about exploring or bringing back H3 from the moon or solar power or whatever. Culturally changes as well. Wow. By the way, what? okay, uh, not to get personal, but may I ask how old you are? Within five years. I actually... um, <laughs> I don't really right, like look, to talk well, about my age well, in the well, okay, air, but well, I'm going to yeah, tell okay. you, I am. I understand what you're talking about. Let's just say that. Okay, <laughs> I I was 17 uh-huh. when Apollo when Apollo 8 orbited the moon, Christmas Eve, 1968. All right. Wow. And yeah, I I didn't see that. I'm I'm a little I'm a little younger than that, but. Um, I I will tell you that um, I remember being fascinated and watching reruns of a lot of things that were his, historical in school. I would be always the one that would go into science class. And it was really weird. Science was what I excelled in, too, as well in, in school. I um, My favorite class was science. It was... Um, I really, I really enjoyed that, and I always asked to see the films. But I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. Well, you were talking oh, no, about no, Apollo well, 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 the, the reason I asked mm-hmm. that is uh, Anders, one of the three astronauts on that mission, mm-hmm. they were photographing the surface of the moon. They were mapping the surface close up to be, you know, recon for what will be Apollo 11. And suddenly he describes how he looked up and he saw Earth rise. Wow. So the Earth rising, and there is a recording mm-hmm. of it you can find on YouTube where the three astronauts are, look at that, look at that, get it, get it now, quick. And it's called the photograph perhaps of the century. It is definitely the photograph that launched the environmental movement. Anders describes when he snapped that photo, he said, when I got back to Earth and they developed the film, it was like gas. It changed the entire paradigm of how humanity looks at itself. Andrew said, Yo, here is this small, beautiful blue-green dot, and all of humanity is there. Mm-hmm. And we, we saw from this different perspective. It became perhaps some of, one of the most famous iconic photos in history. Mm-hmm. That I remember, I remember space, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a spiritual change. People had a spiritual change just from looking at that photograph. And you know what? That's very true because I remember 
hearing a lot of adults talking about that and hearing people say, wow, this is really happening. And um, there were so many things they didn't tell us about what was really going on um, that came out later on about the space missions and different things happening and um, they had going on. And I'm sure you're aware of that, right? You've you've been around that. Oh yeah, there were, there were, for example, risk factors were a lot higher than admitted to. Uh, it would be quietly admitted years later that the odds on Armstrong and Aldrin getting back were put at fifty fifty. Uh, mm. Challenger Challenger was described as a safe system when. Those who were doing some of the real number crunching were saying in any given mission there was a 5 to 10% probability that it was going to be a catastrophic failure. Let me add something, though, and it's a favorite quote of mine. Um, when the Arctic explorers were going to the North Pole and South Pole, a uh, British explorer by the name of Scott went for the South Pole. He died in the effort. And his last journal entry was, we took risks. We knew we took them. Things have come out against us, but we have no need for complaint. The men and women who are going into space, they do know the odds. They're willing to take it. If risk stopped us, we never even wouldn't have come to America. Our great-great-great-grandparents would not have loaded up the covered wagons and gone to California. We wouldn't have fought a revolution. We wouldn't have stood up against the Nazism and Japanese imperialism. There's always risk in life. It's worth taking. Mm-hmm. But we, but you know what? Also, a lot of people are really, really believe in a lot of what they hear. So that comes into the. Um, I I don't know if you get. Do you get the forbidden TV videos? Do you ever get those every day? The forbidden knowledge videos? No, I don't. I have to tell you, forbidden knowledge really um, uncovers some of the stuff, and they they send out videos every day, and I look at them pretty much every time I get one, and I was just amazed at some of the stuff that I've learned from it. But then again, mm-hmm. hearing things from other people, too, has also caused me to understand more. Um, I want to ask you, now that you've written Pillar to the Sky, what are you currently working on now? Oh, gosh, uh, Pillar to the Sky, too. <laughs> oh, wow, that's great. And also, uh, I'm concurrent, um, writing a sequel to uh, One Second After. Are you people really? People love sequels, yeah. Oh, yeah. Publishers and people Pub- love sequels. What uh, about them being made into a movie? Have you thought about that? From your lips to God's ear. Um now, I don't mean that sarcastically. At this very moment, uh, my L.A. agent, um, there's a serious package coming together uh, on both of those books. That's fantastic. And then, I can, and then I can indulge, here in my daughter's medical school, I can indulge my fantasy of buying a Stearman PT-17 biplane. I'm an antique aviation buff, and I've always wanted to own a biplane. 
You know, um, I can see it maybe even being like a TV series where each week there's something different that you bring in on that. That's one of the ideas that's being kicked around mm-hmm. uh, between film or a mini series or a regular series. That that would be kind of cool, I think. Um, a mini series would be really cool because people want to know. I can't tell you how many people watch the History Channel and watch. Um, they just watch the alien abduction and the aliens uncovered and this and that. And people are listening to stuff and hearing and seeing stuff. And I have to tell everyone that. You know, you're going to watch what you see on TV, but always do your own investigation as well. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you what do you personally do when you hear a rumor of some sort that's really kind of credible? What do you do to find out whether or not it's true or not? What kind of it? What kind of um, what kind of things do you do to to investigate? That's a fun question because I'm a trained historian. And mm-hmm. a fair part of that training is research, uh, how to do research, how to differentiate facts from fiction, um, which can be very tough. You, know, you take almost any moment in history, and it's that old line about if 50 people witness an accident, there's 50 different versions of what happened. It's true of any great historical event. And... It's trying to pinpoint that down. That's what a historian does. So when mm-hmm. I hear things that sound like, hmm, that's pretty strange, but it could be true, mm-hmm. before I'll pass it up the food chain to other friends. And, you know, we all get deluged every day by friends telling us, hey, look at this or look at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do a lot of fact-checking first before I'll put it out. Oh, I, I, I'm sure. I mean, it's like you have to. Because I personally, a lot of the stuff really scares me. It's not that they want to put the fear in people, but some of it scares me to the point that this stuff is really real. A lot of it's really happening, and they're not really telling mm-hmm. the public about it. And that is a disadvantage to some of us. Like I said, when the Fukushima incident happened, they were letting everyone in California think were that they were okay. Well, we were okay, but every store in the area was sold out of um, potassium iodide, which, right. by the way, which, by the way, I did um, some research on that, and <laughs> there I am doing research, and I was found and told by a couple different doctors that I worked with and talked to that that is probably one of the worst things you can take if you're exposed to radiation because it really majorly messes with your thyroid. And yes. in the worst-case scenario, of course, obviously it is something that they do hand out, but um, I tended to try to get iodine from natural ingredients like um, kelp, seaweed, um, um, spirulina, stuff like that. And um, I can't, But, boy, I'll tell you, every place, in the area was sold out and um, they were even selling it online and of course there you go capitalizing on something that normally costs like $5 for a box of like a bunch of about 40 they were selling mm-hmm. it for like 100 and something dollars so you know it's like you have to do your investigation on it um, what what made you um, 
really, as you were younger, what was the in, the factor that really, besides watching the takeoffs and the and the spaceships taking off, what made you decide that that's really where your head heart was at and what you wanted to do with your life? My mom would often tell the same. His mom was sitting in right now on this phone mm-hmm. call. She would chuckle and remember a day mm-hmm. when I was eight years old and a teacher called my mother up and we walked from the school across, then just down the street to the optometrist. And a half hour later, they break the news to me, I have to wear glasses. I, mm-hmm. I had a rare kind of astigmatism. Mm-hmm. And I sat there sobbing. And when asked why by the doctor, it's like, I can't be an astronaut now. I know. I but, remember reading that. I was so and sad. And I was devastated. Uh, and it also meant I couldn't be a military pilot, though uh, I own I own military aircraft. I, I have a 1943 uh, Warbird that I fly, an L3B. Mhm. And you own two I, airplanes, right? Yeah, yeah. I have I have two planes from the 40s, and mm-hmm. now I want to get one from the 30s. So I'm, I'm perfectly okay for civilian flight. Uh, just wouldn't be qualified for military. Uh, Ever since the earliest childhood, I've always been fascinated with uh, aviation and space. And I first learned to fly when I was in college. And that's my place of meditation as well. I will listen mm-hmm. to Constance Demby. After I take off and I've gotten up to where I want to go, I'll click on Constance Demby in my headphones. And honestly, I find that's the best place to pray. That's where I have my converse, best conversations with God are when I'm floating up through some clouds. Wow, that's fantastic. What do you feel like when you take a flight? Um, <clears throat> are you a, a commercial flight, not a, not your own flight him. before I you go? Him. I, I know, him. I, I hate him. him, I hate him, I hate him. Because you never uh, know. I'm stuck, I'm stuck mm-hmm. in an aluminum tube, chewing on my kneecaps, because I'm six foot five, mm-hmm. and I feel like cattle. Uh, but any time I go to Europe, it does strike me, yeah, okay, I got eight hours stuck eating my kneecaps, but when my beloved grandfather came to America, he spent three weeks riding a vomit comet across the Atlantic in 1909. Um, so it's a miracle, in a sense, you know, the, the transition and, and how we can just go to Europe casually now. Um uh, or go around the world. I mean, I've been to Mongolia. I've, I've done archaeological work there. We can go anywhere in the world within 36 hours. Mm-hmm. You get another pitch point here. After we built some space elevators, you can go anywhere in the world in several hours. Yeah, I know. Once you're up, I, once you're up there. It's a fascinating for me. thought, isn't it? What about time but, travel? I want to ask you what you think about time travel because I, I believe in it. If it was true, mm-hmm. there, there's an old line. If it was true, there'd be so many spectators at the Battle of Gettysburg, there'd be more people there than the, the soldiers who participated. Mm-hmm. But what is the mystery of time? That it's, That's a fascinating question. Yeah. And is, are we, do we live in a certain, you know, not in a linear time system, but in a circular one. Um, it's a fascinating thing to play with. I've even written a couple of stories about time travel. 
mm-hmm. but true, we begin a lot of tours showing up for a lot of different events. I mean, imagine if time travel was two. How many people would have shown up in Daly Plaza on that horrible day when Jack Kennedy was killed? Exactly. How and you know what I think? I think that they're keeping it, though, as something that they're not really telling the public about. I think that, um, oh, I know. I want to ask you, have you watched the series Continuum at all? Have you watched any of it? I don't watch television, actually, except you don't. I, turn on the, Interesting. I turn on the news, and the last TV series I got involved with was Battlestar Galactica. That was about 10 oh. years ago. You have to watch Continuum. Watch it from season one to Mm -hmm. now, and you will be blown away. And me, I don't really like, I I personally don't really watch a lot of television myself, except um, certain things that really intrigue me. And Continuum happened to be one of the shows that really, um, I felt, was very realistic. Uh, Uh It's about a woman from the future, that um, she is a um, one of the keepers. She takes care of the earth as we know it then at that point. And um, there was a group of, I guess, rebel-type characters that were trying to do things on the earth that they were going to send them to a place in space um, forever. And evidently somebody gets in there and throws the machine, I guess, the time machine that they're using to send them to there, and they send them back in time, and they land on Earth through a gateway, and she's, here's this person in the, from the future, and she's able to be heard by this one person who in the future is, in in that time, a, a young adult, but in the future turns out to be the leader of the entire Earth and develop all the security things for, um... The world as we know it. So, it continuum is very cool. I really liked it. I, I wouldn't talk about it if I didn't. It's something that um, I felt was very could happen. It just um, very much was I'll very realistic. Yeah, I, I would. I, I really implore you to do that. And um, I think that. I, oh, I want to make another announcement really quick. Again, this is Holly Stuffy <laughs> with Red Velvet Media. And today we're talking about Pillar to the Sky with William R. Forreston. And um, this is really um, some really interesting information. Um, tell me how music works for you. Because um, I know that you, when we opened up with that piece of music that you wanted, what does music do to you? Does it Does it create, does it help you co-create or does it just help you get into oh. that space? Mm-hmm. Else they get into the space. I mean, music touches the soul. Um, mm-hmm. Music has been part of humanity from the very beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember writing a novel once uh, that was a little too depressing, and my agent called me up and said, "Bill, stop listening to the Wagner." <laughs> oh, that's funny. I was listening too much to German opera, and uh, but in writing. Um, in writing Pillar, Constance Denby was a fabulous source of inspiration for several of the scenes. Uh, when I was writing One Second After, uh, there's one song from the Fantastics, uh, Try to Remember the Kind of September, which mm-hmm. is 
quite poignant, and I actually wrote that scene into the book because the song speaks so much about something that's been lost. Constance Demby's works are deeply spiritual, some of them. She uses a lot of Gregorian chant inspiration, but also very... You really do feel like you're flying through space. Had a couple oh, of yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Absolutely. Yeah, the through the Stargate moment is like, I've I've all but blown the speakers on my sound system. I had to what? play that for you. I had yeah. to play that for you because yeah. you had, you just, it was just um, something that I, when you said, oh, I hope you got the part when you hear the space, the da 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 and I go, yep, I got it. Yep. So, yeah, definitely. Um I want to ask you, what, what books are you currently reading that you're not writing yourself? What do you find yourself picking up and reading? I am incredibly boring when it comes to that question. I'm doing research. Huh? Uh-huh. Uh, I, there's a stack. You know, uh, my, my house is going through a remodeling right now. Uh-huh. And uh, the wonderful uh, young lady in my life uh, who's helping me with, she has that ability to pick things out. And, and she was joking about the fact that as the, the contractor had to gut out the bedroom, I must have had about six or 700 books stacked up in there. Wow. And we were just talking about it earlier today. I'm going crazy because I don't know where my books are. They're all stacked up in closets. But most of my reading is related to my work, either as a college professor or as a writer and doing research. That's, that's cool. Uh, for, for Pillar, uh, for Pillar, actually, I love the historian McCullough, who wrote incredibly neat books on the building of the Panama Canal and the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, I know the most readers they think that sounds boring, but in actuality, it's fascinating. He gets very much into the human interest stories of the great engineers who designed and built these things. And mm-hmm. They inspired me and in, in what I was trying to write. What What were you reading when you were younger? What kind of books were you reading? <laughs> I, I want to hear that. You're, you're making me laugh because my junior year in high school, I was expelled from school. Um, you were? I, yeah, I was in a monastic uh, Catholic high school, and I said something incredibly rude to the head abbot. Mm-hmm. and I was out the door along with the fact that I was flunking almost every subject and I, my poor parents were pulling their hair out because that was the year I discovered Tolkien. I oh, really? Read, I could read, write, and speak Elvish fluently. Are and you it was, serious? It was driving them nuts. You, you flunk oh, French, great. you flunk Latin, but you're learning Elvish? Yeah. <laughs> my poor parents. Let me, my poor let parents. Me tell you. That's 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 very cool. So, did you enjoy The Hobbit? Did you enjoy any of the um, books? All any of, of the any of the movies? All of yeah. them. Yeah. In fact, one of the things I will forever kick myself for. Uh, I was working with a UK editor, editor over mm-hmm. in England, uh, mm-hmm. project just when they were getting set to start making the movies, and mm-hmm. her house was tied in on it, and she actually said, hey, Bill, you want to be an extra in the movie? And I was like, what? And she said, yeah, you'd be a perfect elf. I mean, you're nice and tall. And I turned it down. 
I could have been well, at the Battle me, of Helm's Deep. I could have been at the Battle you. of Helm's Deep, and I turned no, it down. Don't, don't feel bad about that because if you want, if you if you want to go, if you ever get, have want to go to New Zealand, I have uh, two friends over there plus Bruce Hopkins who plays in Lord of the Rings um, as the king's um, assistant, and he plays a pretty major part in that. That yeah. my friends here from America went over, and they got to tour Hobbit Village, Hobbit Town, where they had all the little houses and got to go to the sets and stuff like that. So if you ever want to go to New Zealand and do that, I can hook you up. <laughs> I've, I've actually been in several movies. Uh, Have as you? Experts. Yeah. Uh, really? One t- yeah, I'm, I'm the third dead body on the right in one scene in a Civil War battle. Uh, the third dead body on the right. But <laughs> to have been able to have been one of the elves marching in at Helm's Deep, Remember oh, yeah. that scene? It's raining, and they come yep. marching in, and it's so cool. Yep. And they, hey, that's me, guys. Look, third elf from the left, and this time I'm alive. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, see, that so would have been. Was, Tolkien was my great influence. That and and The Godfathers of Science Fiction, Arthur C. Clarke, Sunrises mm-hmm. and Sets on Ray Bradbury, as far as I'm concerned. And then, have you, read a strange have you ever read any Harlan Ellison? course. I yeah. mean, he was really hitting it big right when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And, and another favorite, which might sound slightly strange, is Herman Melville. I was enthralled with Herman Melville's work uh, when I was a teenager. And wow. let me add, I'm, I'm dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So my ability to read, I read very, very slowly. Um, Gosh, when I was in graduate school, that, that, that was 18-hour days when, when I was in graduate school, particularly when I was preparing for my, my doctoral exams of just study, read, sleep, write a little bit, because I was actually writing novels while I was in grad school, study, read, sleep. So I do read rather slow. It takes me a long time to get through a book. That's why I love audio books. I, I can listen to books while I'm driving. Mhm. Mhm. What are you listening to in your car right now? Oh God, you're gonna sound. This is gonna make me sound. No, I want to hear this. this. I'm 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 on disc seven of Pillar to the Sky. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm listening to my own book. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's great. No, don't be sorry. That's great because your own, you're your own worst. You know, you not your own worst, but you're your best critic. I mean. You're going to know, you're going to know, I mean, you're the one that's going to be able to um, know what, you listen to it, you're going to hear what you may have missed and what you want to add. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I cringe. Absolutely. About every 15 minutes I cringe and I go, oh, no, I missed that one. (laughs) Yeah, and you'll be listening to this interview and you'll be thinking, what did I forget to say? Um, (laughs) I always do. do. What do you want to tell anybody that is out there that that really isn't in, interested in science and stuff? That really, um, where would they go? And what would they need? What would you um, suggest to somebody that if they wanted to do this at a young age, who should they talk to? Uh, well, I tell my students all the time: dream mm-hmm. big and reach for the stars. Uh, mm-hmm. Read some of the classic histories of uh, 
science and tech. There's a new, in fact, there's a new TV series launching, Cosmos, which is a redo of the very famous series by Carl Sagan. Uh, that's launching, I think, this weekend even. Um, read the good histories of space program. Uh, there's, uh, there's a really good series. I think the title was From the Earth to the Moon or another one in the shadow of the moon. Uh, my friend Nude always points out, read biographies. Read about men and women who did things that you are interested in and the struggles they went through to achieve what they did. So mm-hmm. that's something I read both for pleasure and also for research. Um, I recently reread the trilogy on uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, the third book did. came out. Yeah, uh, the first two were by Manchester. He passed away, and then finally, uh, an author actually who lives in North Carolina finished the series last year. Wow. So I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, telling people to read biographies. I think um, biographies are really cool because you can get to read a lot of different things that you may have not been able to hear anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um. I've extended our show, just so you know, too. I hope you have a few more moments. I I sure. made it a little bit longer because I think this is really interesting. Um, what what um out of when you were writing Pillar to the Sky, what part did you really relate to more so than in, in the book than other parts? What part did you feel that you could see yourself being part of? Oh, gosh. Uh, several friends picked up on a couple of very autobiographical moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the very beginning of the book, uh, when my main character, Gary Morgan, we flash back to when Gary Morgan was a graduate student. And his very first day, when he goes in to meet the man who will become his mentor, Eric Rothenberg. In my life, there was Gunther Rothenberg. And Gunther Rothenberg was my mentor in graduate school. He was German-Jewish. His family got out one step ahead of the Gestapo. He wound up as a commando in the British Army in World War II. So that character is based on Gunther. And the first day Gary meets Gunther, that was pure autobiography of getting grilled and you have to do this, 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 and this. And by the way, bring my coffee at 7.30 in the morning. Except the way Gunther, if anybody out there listening knew Gunther, they'll chuckle because I could imitate him. He sounded like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he said, I expect my oh, coffee at 0730. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary, as I wrote him as a young man, was a very nerdy, awkward type of guy and mm-hmm. became absolutely tongue tied around girls. That was mm-hmm. very, very much me and still is at times. Um, the dream for me is when Gary goes up the pillar. Mm-hmm. That just, that is the great fantasy of my life, that I will reach space in this lifetime. That's why I want to see the pillar built. For many, oh, many sure. others. The, the very personal reason I wrote the book is, I want to take that trip someday because that's that's the only way people like you and I will be able to get into space. Uh, 
at $25,000 a pound, we can't afford it. Only a very select few can at this point. Mm-hmm. Branson and Rutan are taking the first step with suborbital flights, but even those cost a quarter of a million dollars. Once wow. we achieve an economical way of getting out of this gravity well, space will be opened up to all of us. And oh, i got to throw in a pitch for one thing here. If anybody wants to think about sports and space in the future, click on YouTube and watch a little video called Grinding the Crack. It is about the guy is Jeff Corliss. He's a base jumper. And the crack is a canyon in uh, Switzerland. And he wears a squirrel suit and he flies through it. He's a skydiver. He jumps off the top of the cliff and he flies through this. Those are the types of sports we could be doing in space in the 21st century. Oh, That's sure. That's something I want to try. Yeah. That would be something that that you would love. I mean, do you think that um, – how far off do you think we are from doing what you're writing about? 10 to 15 years. Okay. If and we'll see, tomorrow, so we'll see it in this lifetime. Yeah, we'll see it yes, in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yes, we will. Now, mm-hmm. again, people say that's absurd. Well, think of, okay, my grandmother. My grandmother passed away in 1984. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was born in 1898. Shortly before she passed, I sat down and talked with her about her life and things she saw. And I asked her, Granny, do you remember the first time you saw an airplane? Granny lit up. And she said, I remember how one day, I think it was Wilbur Wright, and my grandmother described a very famous air race in 1908 or 1909 where Wilbur Wright and Glenn Curtis flew airplanes up the Hudson River and all of New York City came to a stop and swarmed down to the Hudson River to watch two aerial planes fly by. My grandmother lived long enough to see men walk on the moon. She lived long enough to see her grandson actually become a state semifinalist for the teacher astronaut program. My grandmother, think of the span in Granny's lifetime of all she saw. Now imagine going back to like 1915 and talking to her as a young woman saying, you know, you're going to see people fly in space and walk on the moon. Your grandson is going to be doing this and that. She was like, come on now. <laughs> you know, that, that's fiction. Progress yeah, and you never think that that's really something that's going to happen, and it does. It really yes. does happen. Yeah. And it's like it's like um, with cell phones. We never thought back when we were younger that there would ever be a cell phone. Remember the first cell phone, the one that was like the big brick? I mean, I remember. Oh, Seeing movies uh, about people carrying those around and thinking that was really funny. And now here we I have remember, cell phones. Hey, as a professor, uh, well, let, let me put it this way. As a graduate student, I started in 1989 at Purdue University. Mm-hmm. And I hauled in, the first day in class, I hauled in a 14-pound laptop. It was a Tandy oh, 1400. Funny. And I opened it up, and I can remember the professor sitting there and looking at it, and his exact words were, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, it, it's a computer, sir. Mm-hmm. I don't like this. And so, 
at the end of class, he asked me to stay after. He looked at it for a couple of minutes, and he said, I don't want this in my class. You're distracting me. The way you oh, can look funny. at me and keep on typing. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. said, but sir, my handwriting is so bad. Please, please, I'll sit in the back of the room. He said, okay, but I think this is strange, these machines. Now, that was at a major university only 25 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Let me think, 25 years ago. Life? Hold on a second. Let me think. Um, 1989. Wow, well... I was exposed to computers at a very young age. My father worked with, um, oh, I guess uh, you could say security and stuff like that with the government, with computers. And I remember being, gosh, eight or nine years old and him telling me, do you know what a computer is? One day he brought something home, and I said, what is that? He says, it's a, it's what they call a, a telecommunication. And I said, well, what is it? And he says, well, it's, it's actually really a computer. And I said, well, what does it do? <laughs> and he says, you better learn how to, you know, because I'm going to tell you the world is going to be run by these at one point or another. And, I mean, that was that was a while ago, and... um. And he worked with Telex before it became um, Boeing and um, then Boeing Vertol got involved and all that. And it was like, okay, I know what this is. So as I got older and I got turned on to computers, I still hear my father in my head saying, you better learn about computers, you better know what they are. And um, that was a trip back then. And... uh, they were using computers back on the on the on the ships because I remember him having to leave to go away because he knew where missiles were and stuff like that. I I can't really talk too much about everything. I mean, I could talk about it off the air, but not now. But there yeah. were things that he knew and that he would tell me, and the computers were running it. So computers were around back in the '60s and the '70s. I mean. There they were. <laughs> oh, actually, actually, they date back to 1900. They were building That's mechanical crazy. computers. Uh, so when was but, when was the first when was the first one built, Bill? Uh, oh, actually, uh, you go back into the early 1900s. They were building mechanical computers for battleships to mm-hmm. figure out gunnery control. I did my well, master's thesis on that. Yeah, that's what he was involved in. Yeah, yeah. And, and knowing where things were. Yeah, um, and the first home computers came out, mm-hmm. 4K machines, uh, the Tandys. Uh, mm-hmm. We used to call them trash 80s. They came out around 1979, 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, uh, 60, my first computer I bought to write with was a Commodore 8032, which was a business machine that was 32K, $3,000. Wow. Money. Yeah, That's I a lot of money back novel. then. That's a lot of money yeah, back it, then. It'd be like spending $10,000 today. But mm-hmm. I sold my first mm-hmm. novel, and I needed to rewrite it, and I got a computer. I've been writing on them ever since. If only no, I bought I, stock I, in Apple. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I remember now, now if you go to the Apple um, site, they have on their their 30-year anniversary, and they show you actually the history of their computer 
which is yes. pretty interesting um, to see the very first one that they made. Um, I was kind of blown away by that and seeing it because I remember seeing those. <laughs> so for me, it was like, okay, um, <clears throat> did your daughter? What does your daughter think about all the computer technology and stuff? It's part of her world. It's mm-hmm. you know, part of what she grew up with. Um, she totes around her cell phone, her iPad. Um, it's just the world she grew up in. In the same way mm-hmm. you and I grew up in a world of uh, automobiles and television, that to our grandparents were, were miraculous. Mm-hmm. Um, each level of technology that comes in becomes part of the background of our lives and we don't even notice it. Yeah, seem miraculous or science fiction to somebody from only 20 years earlier. And isn't it trippy now that we have all this happening and the things that we talked about not happening and maybe possibly happening back way back then is a reality now? Mm-hmm. It's very it's a very humbling. I'm going to tell you that. I hear you going through your book. Going through oh, no, no, there. I'm actually, I just lit my pipe. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, you're a pipe yeah, smoker. Yeah, yeah. Very, I that's quit, that's cool. I quit cigarettes uh, at the behest of daughter and others, so uh, I'm just lighting my pipe up there. So now how <laughs> is your daughter feeling? Is she is she doing well? Um, she's well, doing good caught, with everything that's going on? It was a rare birth defect. It was caught by luck. And as the doctor said, when all the surgeries were done, young lady, you are now in the healthiest day of your life, and you're going to have a very healthy life ahead of you. Oh, wow. Um, Technologies that caught it, I thank NASA for. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it could have been a high probability it could have been a very dangerous situation if not detected. These are things we take for granted now. Did you think did you think back then about the lasers? I've I've been watching um some of the shows about lasers that they've been finding them in the pyramids um and they didn't know they were lasers until they took them outside and then the laser worked once it was hit by the sun. So that was pretty interesting. I haven't me. heard about that. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, and and they showed it. They actually showed it, and it was like a stone type thing that was that you could hold in your hand, and uh, the lasers actually shot a laser out. So they're saying laser technology is not something that we just had happen recently. Um, not at all. And no. I know laser. I know lasers are very very integral now to a lot of the different things that are going on in the world. So um, that there is also something that's really, 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 really interesting. I just, um, I just, I just think that it's so, it's so, it's so cool to see those, those type of things that are happening. I just never, you never know. You just never know that that's really going to happen. It's going to mm-hmm. keep, actually, there's an interesting statistic mm-hmm. that of all the engineers who have ever lived, the majority of them are alive right now. Mm-hmm. 
across yeah. all the thousands of years of humanity, the people who are the engineers who create all of these wonders, they're alive right now. We are going to continue to see a fascinating uh, development in terms of the future of humanity. And I have a positive belief that you know we, we can solve our problems. Mm-hmm. And new technologies are going to be the way to do it. And some people don't want to. And did you ever hear how people sometimes say, "Oh, we don't want to. I don't want. To, I don't want to do it." They're like so indeed the old school, as people would say, old school. They don't aren't ready to go and move into the future. They're still wanting to do everything by hand, like um, you know, writing um, out. Their thing, their things, instead of using a computer and scheduling on a on a on a date book and stuff like that, mm-hmm. because technology can fail, and we do know that because um, it's happened quite a lot to a lot of different people. Um, so this yeah, is I've, this I've, is really interesting. This is just so interesting about this and the pillar to the sky. I see it happening. I really do. Oh, thank you, mm-hmm. because that is my great dream. Mm-hmm. Of all the things I've dreamed about the future, this this is the one I dream. This is my big dream to see this happen. Oh yeah, and I think I think that you're going to be here to see it now. Have you? Do you think that they might ask you to um, be a consultant on any of it if they do decide to do it? Again, from your lips to God's ear, um, I sure would be thrilled to get a call someday and say, "Hey." Um, want to be an advisor on this group, um, mm-hmm. that would really excite me. Um, I mean, one second after resulted in my becoming involved with a uh, team called NOAA Foundation. And, mm-hmm. in fact, we are going to be meeting with state senators from North Carolina next week for uh, prepping up our electrical infrastructure, make it safer. So that that's something fantastic. I never expected I'd be be involved with. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot. There are dozens of startup companies that are going to be going into space. And my great prayer with this book is is that one of them will read the book and go, hey, guys, we're going to make this thing, and then see it go from there. Mm -hmm. I think that that's going to happen. I really do. If anyone missed the beginning of the show, you can listen to it. It's an entirety on iTunes and on demand afterwards on Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio. Um, I just like to tell people that because a lot of times people tune in late. We do have a lot of live listeners. I'm looking at the numbers. Um, There are only a couple people in the chat room, but there are quite a few people listening live. And I want to thank everybody that's tuned in today and um, all my friends on Facebook and... um, I know, Louie, you're listening, and uh, I want to thank my mom and all the other people that believe in um, all these interviews that are just so important. And by the way, <clears throat> I wanted to do this interview with you because I thought I was very intrigued. I thought it was very good information that really needed to get out there. And thank uh, you. I, mean, I congratulate I, I you. I love this. This is. <sighs> You're helping to get the word out. Okay, granted, an author likes to see his book sold. Uh-huh. But when it comes to Pillar, I want to see the mm-hmm. idea get picked up and people carry it further down the field. 
That's mm-hmm. my great dream. Well, I think that's going to happen, and I don't think that I don't think it's something that is something that we're not going to see because there are a lot of things that we've been talked to about when we were younger, and they've all come to pass to be now. And uh, I think that's just fantastic. And I think what you're doing is a fantastic um, opportunity for so many people to be able to get involved in fantasy plus science fiction and then also in the reality of really what's happening. And um, I think it's great that you are also in our realms of education and you're giving the proper information out to people, which is really great. I think that that's uh, important that we have the right education in school for our our young our young adults that are out there that want to know more. So you're a very good person to go to for that. Well, let me throw a plug in here for NASA. NASA oh, definitely. It's, it, it's ten main bases. It has mm-hmm. ten major bases around the country. It's mm-hmm. not just Cape Kennedy and Houston. I uh, saw NASA that has, when I downloaded the app. I saw that. It shows all the different stations. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know that. All I, those bases have uh-huh. student outreach programs. Do they? Uh, kids can sign in uh, both mm-hmm. for online. But, in fact, the day I was at Goddard, there there was a whole school group there spending the day at Goddard. And they mm-hmm. have summer programs and internships. There's a lot of ways that students, whether just had a curiosity or a desire to maybe pursue a field, as young as middle school can get involved with NASA and connect in with them. So reach out. And if you're a parent listening to this and you have a kid who's interested in this stuff, get online, look up the NASA resource information, and mm-hmm. get your child signed up in it. That's a really That's a really good thing. I actually have my NASA app open. I had to open it because I had to tell you. Have you seen the NASA app on the iPhone? Uh, no, I haven't put it on yet. I'll put. I'll throw it on my page. Unbelievable! It's unbelievable because it's got mission images, videos. It's got the Twitter account, TV and radio, news and features, and then it's got the centers. And of course, it's showing all the different centers with pinpoints. There's one in San Francisco, uh-huh. two in LA. Let me make it bigger here. One in Texas, one in New Orleans, one near Florida, Virginia, Washington, a couple it looks like in Maryland, uh-huh. and one in Ohio, and one in Alabama, uh-huh. and one in yeah, Alabama. Because it shows that. The pins are on the map, and then when you click on the pin, it takes you, like for instance, if I click on, let's click on the one in Tor- near Toronto, that's the one in Ohio, it actually brings it up, and it says it's the NASA Glen Visitor Center, and it tells where it's at. And um, there's really cool things here, like a gallery where it says, look inside the actual 1973 Skylab 3 Apollo. Um can actually um, do different courses, like you said. There are different courses here. Then there's featured a featured thing here, which is really cool because they're all different videos and all different things that are really interesting. I I was really I was joked with by everyone when I downloaded this. I was like, you've got to be kidding. And I said, no. Well, you know, I wanted to be an astronomer when I was younger, and this is really something that I really enjoy. And another app I downloaded 
that is really, really, really cool. And I don't know if you've um, seen this one. It's called Starwalk. Oh, yeah, I have that. Oh, I love that. Love it. That's cool to have, yeah. Isn't it? And you see the actual constellations, and you actually get to see the shooting stars and um, the different meteor showers, and it lets you know on the calendar when those things are happening. I mean, no one would think I would be into this, but it's something definitely that's part of my life that that I'm constantly aware of. And um, One of the things I'm you can always... find on the NASA app is uh, uh-huh. whenever the space station is passing over that you can see it. You yeah. Declination, everything. It's um, and the satellites too. You get yes. to see the satellites in that um, Starwalker, and you get to see yep. the satellites and the names of them, and then the names of some of the stars that you just never even knew were there. Yep. <laughs> it's very interesting, and uh, I I I think NASA is something that we all need to kind of look at because. Um, there's a lot there to learn, and for people that are curious, there's a lot more to learn there too. So um, you were giving a shout out to NASA, and then who else would you? And your daughter, obviously, if yes. she's listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's driving Definitely. home from school this evening, so I just want to make she? sure she's home safe. Aww. What are your plans for the weekend? Well, there's a young lady in my life uh, who's supposed to have dinner a little bit later this evening, and then okay. uh, her daughter's coming home from school, too, and we'll, we'll be devoting uh, next week to our kids. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. I think that's great, and um, it's going to be a really cool weekend. Remember, we're turning our clocks ahead an hour on on a su- Saturday night. Yeah, Saturday, Saturday night. night. And I want to let everyone know that <clears throat> next week, on Wednesday, I have the emissary with Patricia Corey, and then on Friday, we're going to be celebrating World Water Day. But on Monday, I have a special show that just came up with Joan Clark, who's going to be do the, doing the Moon Goddess Retreat, um, where everybody takes this pilgrimage that's signed up on her thing and goes to France and follows the Mary Magdalene pilgrimage. So oh, my she will gosh. be doing, yeah, it's unbelievable. She's. Her name is Joan Clark. You can find her on Facebook. She's an unbelievable woman. I mean, she takes you to places. It's a spiritual journey of the Magdalene in France. It's May 14th through the 28th. And um, you get to go through all the different areas throughout France and to areas that no one knows about. And um, because they're they're saying that Mary Magdalene took pilgrimage in France um, and had a daughter named Sarah and another daughter too. So it's very interesting. If you are wanting to know more about that, tune in Monday. That show will be going up uh, this weekend. And uh, make sure to tune in Monday. I'll be doing a special show on Monday on that. And then Wednesday again with Patricia Corey on The Emissary, which is a really cool book. And then on Friday, World Water Day. So I, I want to thank you so much for being here today. And um, well, thank Thank you for the extra time and just Are the you pleasure kidding? of the conversation. It's this been is great. Fun. I want to have you back. I want to have you definitely back. I would love to have you back. And um, we're going to end with a song that I think you're going to love. It's kind of a it's kind of a cool song. Um, it's not the song that we opened up with, but you'll like this song. 
with that okay. to everyone, please make sure you guys have a really great weekend and don't drink and drive. And also make sure to check out the stars whenever you can because there's always things happening, new things. You can go to NASA, look at the up-and-coming events. And make sure you grab Pillar to the Sky. Um, and uh, it's um, also One Second After, which was the New York Times best-selling author. So that is who I have on today, William Forestian. So you are the man as far as I'm concerned, with space. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, and um, enjoy your weekend. And for everyone listening, thank you so much, and make sure to tune in Monday as I host another show on Monday. And here you go. Yeah. Stop.